Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Out of the Cave podcast. This podcast, you, you could say it's about a lot of things, but really the real purpose of this podcast is a way for me to have conversations with people I find interesting and want to speak with. I've always been interested in what it means to be a man, personality, relationships, morality, the existence of God, and a bunch of other topics in that same vein. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations and take something away like I will. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. And we're on. Steve, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Vincent, for having me. Awesome. Yeah, so it's kind of funny how we met really by chance. I, I, was, uh, I just jumped in a lake with my girlfriend uh, outside of Minneapolis, and we had parked our moped on the street near your house. And as we were about to leave, you came out, I think, to get your mail. And we had noticed that on, on the roof of your car, we thought at the time it was a sail. I'm from the Northeast, so I, I did some sailing when I was younger. But it turned out to be a sculler, and we ended up having a really good conversation about it. And, you know, being from the Northeast, I knew about crew and I knew about the sport of rowing and our conversation, you just really piqued my interest. So tell us a little bit, what is sculling and how'd you get into it? Well, uh, yes, it certainly was coincidental the way we met on the road in front of my house. Uh, most mornings, uh, certainly in the summer here in, the, in Minnesota, when it's nice out uh, at six o'clock, I find myself with uh, anywhere from maybe eight to a dozen other people in singles nowadays because of COVID-19, we want to maintain our social distancing. In past years, we might be in a double or a quad with one other or three others, but this year it's all been in singles. Um, I you know, grew up in a small town in Minnesota. I had no exposure to rowing, uh, didn't understand what crew was. Uh, in fact, when <clears throat> somebody asked me freshman year if I was interested in joining the crew team, I thought they meant sailing, and I, you know, didn't really understand what it was. But uh, I, I went to I went to college out east. Uh, my introduction to the college that I went to was I was recruited for football, and so I went out there. It was a wonderful college. I played football for two years. I blew out my knee the sophomore year. And after that, I was, uh, you know, I had my, uh, uh, tore three of the four ligaments in my knee. And the orthopedic said, well, you know, in order to, if you want to continue to be athletic, you need to strengthen your upper muscle of your leg and your lower muscle of your leg to compensate for a weak knee. So I'd go into the gymnasium and I'd do squats and I'd work out and things with my buddies. And <clears throat> uh, the crew coach, Pete Gardner, approached me and said, you ought to try crew. And I looked at him and I thought, crew, now that's, now I now know that's rowing, not sailing. Um, yeah, I don't know, Pete, you know, may, maybe. And he took me down into the lower level, into the balls of Davis Varsity House, where they had a, an old dilapidated crew tank. And you could actually sit in slides and have a, a port or a starboard oar and pull it through a tank of water. And it was just a musky park damn kind of you know cavern that this isn't you know any fun at all but ultimately he prevailed upon me because he said if you're if your goal is to um strengthen your your upper leg muscle and your lower leg muscle and you're doing all these squats that's essentially what rowing is it's a squat 70 percent of the power comes from your legs and you know coach Gardner said if you you know are interested in strengthening your leg to compensate for your weak knee it would probably make a lot of sense to crew. So I, I went out for the varsity crew my junior year. I rode my junior and senior year, uh, and that's what led to my, you know, my exposure and subsequent to that, my love of rowing. So you were at Dartmouth, is that right? 
Yes, that's correct. All right. So when you were rowing out there, you rowed for two years, and then if I remember right, you were going to go to the nationals or the was it the Olympics? What, what was the what you were trying to get get into there? Well, this was in '82 when I graduated, 1982. So I think the Olympic years were maybe two years removed from that yet, '80 '84. Uh, but in between the Olympic years, you have national team national team boats that go to the worlds, and so I tried out. Uh, you know, we 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 did a rowing machine or an ergometer test and a number of other tests or whatever, and and I made the the camp of 32 guys that went to Madison, Wisconsin, on Lake Mendota, and trained for two months, two a days, all July, uh, or all June, all July. Uh, to make the boat of eight out of the 32 guys, they picked eight guys to go to Lucerne, Switzerland that year for the Worlds. Uh, I didn't make the boat of eight. Uh, I had only rowed two years. And the, the kind of the fun thing about rowing is it's half of its, half of your success and your ability to move the boat is dependent upon your strength and your cardiovascular system. But the other half is technical. And it's your ability to row technically sound so that you don't impede the progress of the boat as it runs below you. And, you know, frankly, having only rowed two, two years prior to, you know, giving it a shot on the, you know, being invited and, you know, giving it a shot on the national team camp, I probably wasn't technically a very good oarsman. I think if I had the technical abilities that I have now, I would have done uh, substantially better, but I was in the top 14 or 15 guys there. I was always, you know, physically strong and fit, but I didn't have the technical capabilities and I didn't, did not make the, the boat that went to nationals. Um, so I came back to Minneapolis and I looked for people to row with. And there were people that rode, but there wasn't anybody that rode at the level that I was accustomed to over the last couple of months. There was nobody that said, you know, hey, let's get together in a pair or a double and train for the Pan Am games or something like that. So I rode, I kind of lost interest and basically then, um, didn't row until I turned 50 years of age, uh, at which point in time I took up sculling. Now in college, you typically see people in what we call sweep boats, in a boat of eight, a boat of four, sometimes a pair, but most typically you see them in a boat of eight where there's the coxswain who's kind of directing steering, giving direction to the eight of us in the boat. Four port oars, four starboard oars, that's typically what you see. Sculling's a little bit different. You have two blades, uh, a port uh, blade that goes out the right side, a starboard blade that goes out the left side, and you handle two blades instead of one blade. And so it's it's technically a little bit different, although it's the same principle, but it takes a while to get accustomed to it. The sculling boat's a single, you know, are, I'm going to guess, you know, a little less than a foot and a half wide, certainly less than a foot deep, and, uh, you know, maybe 30 feet in length, and they weigh about 30 pounds. So they're very... Uh, uh, sensitive and uh, to balance and things. So it takes a while to learn. But for the last 10 or 11 years, uh, I've been in a single skull in a double and a quad with three others. But that that's essentially what, uh, you know, I've enjoyed over the last decade. I'm fascinated by the excellence of the sport. Like you said, 50% of it is not just the strength you have, but the, the skill and the, the technique. So what is that? What part of of sculling really hooked you that made you fall back in love with the sport and really dive into it? Well, <clears throat> my getting back into the sport was kind of uh, 
fortuitous as you and I met because I was at a bar one night with this guy, Arnie Landy, who's got to be like 90 years old now. In fact, he just had a birthday a couple of days ago. I should know how old he is, but I don't know. But he still rows. He rows in a single. I mean, we see him at Masters Nationals in the 90 plus age bracket coming down the course. Um, and I was at a, a NESCAC function because my daughter went to Middlebury and Arnie went to, I think, Williams. And we were there at the bar talking and all of a sudden he said, oh my gosh, I've got to leave. I've got a meeting with the rowing team. And I looked at him and I said, you row? And he said, yeah, I row with the Minneapolis Rowing Club. He said, have you rowed? And I said, well, I used to row in college. He says, well, you should start again. And I said, no, I think, I think I'm done. That's, you know, that was then, this is now, but good to meet you. You better get to your meeting. So he goes to the meeting and they're talking about, we need to find new members. We need to bring new members into the Minneapolis Rowing Club. And Arnie says, well, I was just at the bar and I got this, this uh, business card from this guy who wrote at Dartmouth. His name's Steve Faber. Well, lo and behold, John Jablonik was at that meeting and it was Jabo's dad, Randy Jablonik, who was my national team coach. So Jabo and I knew each other. So all of a sudden I get a call on my phone and it says, you know, Jablonik on it. And I'm thinking, coach? I mean, why? God, all, after all these years, why would I get a call from coach? Uh, and I answered the phone. I said, coach? And he said, no, this is young Jabo. You know, you should start rowing again. So that's what got me back into rowing. Um, I like the single because you don't have to, you're not dependent upon another person or another three people or another seven people in the boat. You can just, you know, take your boat down to the river, plop it in the river and, and go and have a hell of a workout. Uh, I also like the single. It, it's interesting. One of the great things about rowing in a single, it's just you. You're out there, you and I race, you beat me, I lost. You know, there's no no excuses. Um, and it's just, and, and the ability to move a boat on the water is really kind of special when you get, when, you, when you're moving the boat along and it's gliding on the top of the water and uh, it, it, it's a lot of fun. Now, when you get in a team boat where it's you and me in a double or you and me in a pair, which would be a sweep boat, or you and I in a quad where there's, four of us with with skulls, sculling blades, or you and I in a four where, you know, two of us have two corridors to, now all of a sudden it's a different program because everybody's got to move in sync. What happens is, again, this is the technical part of it. You, the boat glides underneath you. And so you put your blades in the water, you get the catch behind you, you exert pressure on your legs and you do kind of a seated squat, your seat comes back, your blades go forward and the boat moves underneath you and then you slide up to the slide again. So technically you have to do everything right so you don't impede the progress of the boat underneath you. You don't check the progress of the boat as it goes underneath you. And, you know, it's important when you're in a single because, you know, again, if you're applying 10x worth of power but you're only getting 7x worth of run, you're losing, right? But it's especially important when you're in a team boat because you and I have to swing together. We, our blades have to enter the water at the same time. We have to finish our stroke, lift our blades out of the water, recover at the same time, recover at the same speed, come up and down the slides at the same speed, come through the water at the same speed. Because if we don't, every instance in that stroke where we don't, where we're not together, we're checking the progress of the boat. And it makes it really, really difficult. You know, if you and I are rowing and I'm not doing a good job and you're pulling as hard as you can, you just feel like, you know, like you're pulling your oars through cement. But on the other hand, if we're singing together 
And if we're rowing together and we're, we're, we're in each other's rhythm, it's just wonderful. I mean, you just, you just kind of, you know, you, you do this. Uh, I remember at, at the uh, national camp in 82, every one of us, so there's eight members that row in the boat of eight, and then there's a coxswain. But every one of us had a chance to sit in our seat. So I was the four seat. I was in the engine room. I was in the middle. And every one of us had a chance to sit in our seat with the seven other guys that were going to Worlds. So you could row with the seven guys that rowed well and rowed in sync, and, and you'd get in there and see what it was like. And usually if you do a 1,000 meters, which was half of what we did back in the day when we were kids, the race was 2,000 meters. The Olympic races are 2,000 meters. But if you do a 1,000 meters, you'd be tired. I mean, you'd, you know, you're, in a 1,000 meters, you might do 140 strokes, 140 squats as hard as you can, you know, with back effort and arms. You'd be tired over a, you know, three and a half, four minute period. When everybody's in sync and everybody's moving, it, it, it is just absolutely wonderful because you finish that thousand meters and you feel guilty because it doesn't feel bad. You don't feel, I mean, you still feel tired, but you, the, the boat moves so well, it's sat up on the water. And when the boat sits up on the water, it has less surface area in the water. So there's less drag and it just kind of moves along. And it's just, you know, we've had some rows like that with our master's group. I have a group of guys from around the world that get together and I have a boat over in the Heineken regatta in Amsterdam every year in March, although this year it was canceled because of COVID. But, you know, they're all guys that are 55 to 65 years old. In fact, Phil Moncton, I think is now maybe he's our senior statesman. He might be 66 or 67, but we've had some rows on a 5,000 meter course, which is about three miles where, you know, a mile and a half, two miles into it, we're all thinking, you know, we ought to be trying harder. We ought to be pulling harder. It ought to feel worse. This is feeling pretty good. So it's kind of a cool sensation if it works. It seems kind of like flying. I didn't really understand before how the boat like stops and you move and the boat slides underneath you as you pull it back through. Correct. <clears throat> yeah. And so the key is when you come up to your catch, when you come up and your legs are, you know, uh, squatted together, the key is not to stop the boat. And you can watch the, 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 the uh, stern of the boat and you can see it as it comes through, it kind of checks and you don't want that. You want the boat just to continuously move. But the power curve is such that when you catch the water and you start to you know, feel the water that first foot, now you know you've got a good grab on the water, then you really apply your legs and the power curve goes up. What you don't want it to do is go too far down until you get to the next catch. You want to try to keep it up there. So let's talk a little bit about the when you're rowing with multiple people and you have that slow guy in your boat, how do you kind of incorporate him into the boat or how do you shape the team around that guy? Well, one, you, you try very hard never to have that slow guy in the boat <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you really are dumbed down to your lowest common denominator. Um, it's, you know, when we go over to Amsterdam and over the years, I've been able to, you know, fill our boat with, you know, a lot of guys that have a lot of experience and know what it feels like and what it should feel like to row in a boat. I think at one, one year we had of the eight people who were pulling an oar, six of the people in the boat were Olympians, you know, past Olympians who had probably collectively amongst them 13 or 14 Olympic experiences. So everybody knows what it should feel like and how you should row, but you are only as good as the weakest link, if you will, uh, in the boat. If everybody is out pulling me, 
and I'm not able to pull with the same amount of pressure on the blade as they are, the side of the boat that I'm pulling my oar through, and in the case of a sweep boat, if I'm a port oar, uh, you know, it, it, the boat's going kind of kittywampus, and it's not working right. It's not, it's not melding together. So it's, it's very important when you're in a sweep boat and you're with others that you have to, you all have to find that level at which you can all row proficiently and row together. And that may be at a level where some of the guys in the boat feel like they could slam their legs down and apply more pressure and pull the blade through the water with more force. But all that's going to do is upset the boat if the rest of us can't match that. So you, it, it's, it's really important to, to get a mindset where you have to match everybody in the boat. Get all your blades in at the same time, through the water at the same speed, out and, and recover at the same speed. So it's, um, you know, it's, it, that, that, that's what it takes. How do you get in that mindset? Is it just kind of like an experience thing or is it like you're counting in your head? Like how do you get to that point where you're all in sync, like in flow? Well, you can feel it. I mean, if you've been rowing long enough, you can feel it. You can feel when the boat's, you know, checking and, and, and it's difficult. I mean, when you, you know, when you push back on your legs and the final pull through with your back and your arms, you kind of go, well, that, that was like tough. Uh, and it is tough, but you know, in, a, in an eight, you have a coxswain, right? Who's the, the guy that weighs about 145 pounds that sits in there and he steers on the sides and he sees where you're going. And strategically at times he tells you when to take it up, when, you know, to try to pass somebody. But there are very, very few good coxies. Uh, it's easy to steer, maybe not always easy, but somebody can steer the boat. You know, somebody can, you know, yell at you and say, let's, let's take a power 10, here we go, one, you know, and, and, and do that and kind of, you know, play the emotional game or whatever and you generally talk too much. But the best coxies are the ones that look at the boat and they don't mess, they won't look at it and say, hey, Faber, you're missing water on your catch. Hey, Faber, you're washing out on your finish. You know, hey, Vetla, you know, you're hitting the front stops on your way up. They don't single you out, but they'll look at the boat when you go out and you're headed up to the race. And they'll see one or two things that we can all do better that will make the boat flow, that'll make it better. And after about a thousand meters, they'll stop and they'll say, okay, Gentlemen, here's two things that we're going to work on, two technical things that we're going to work on on our way to the starting line. And, and, and there's all sorts of drills that you can do other than just simply rowing at, you know, a cadence or whatever, you know. There's drills that you can do. And here's the things that we're going to work at to get in sync. So a really good coxswain is somebody who's able to look at the people that are in the boat, see the one or two things that we might as a group do better, and then focus on those things and get us to feel the boat. And then all of a sudden, when we start doing that, you kind of go, whoa, okay, we, th this is working, you know. And, and each one of us has to kind of do an audit and say, you know, I was a part of that problem or a lesser part, or I need to focus on this because this is a weakness of mine, and that's kind of what he's getting at or she's getting at. Um, so That's really, really interesting. Well, how do you think that would uh... – a transfer then to like leadership say right not singling somebody out but like focusing on the whole oh i mean i think you know you look at uh uh there are a lot of people who row in boats that are excellent oarsmen that have you know high positions in businesses or start their own companies are successful i mean it's you know 
I, you know, I, I remember when I got into rowing, some of the, you know, back in my junior year after playing football for a couple of years, you know, some people saying, oh, you played football, but now you're going to really see what works like. And I thought, oh, come on, give me a break. You know, I mean, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, a 2000 meter race, that's 280 strokes thereabouts, nonstop, as hard as you can go, or at least you learn a level that you can go at where you can get to the end and the last 250 meters just go all out and be totally exhausted. Um, it takes a lot of conditioning. Um, you know, it's, uh, I always get to the starting line of races, especially when I'm in my single. And I just know that if anybody can beat me, uh, they deserve it because they work really, really hard. Because, you know, I was out every morning in the winter when you can't get on the water here. I was lifting weights, uh, pulling an er ergometer, the machine that simulates rowing. Uh, I spent two, two months last winter in San Diego on Coronado Island rowing out of the San Diego Rowing Club on Mission Bay, uh, going 20 to 25,000 meters a day. So it takes, and all of the guys in the boats that I'm with, what's really fun, the, the, the great thing about the collegiality of rowing is just, you know, that that's what the last 10 or 11 years, when we were kids, you and I would compete for a seat. So it was a little bit like, you know, if you made it to the worlds and I didn't, you know, you, there's more of a competition. Here now as masters, you and I compete against one another. You know what, we have a great race. Maybe you beat me. And then an hour later, you and I are in a double, rowing a double together, trying to beat a couple of other guys. And we're, you know, we're, we're back in the boat and on a team. And I don't, harbor any grudge against the fact that you beat me in the single we're out there rowing hard having fun doing our thing and the the it's just absolutely I, I what I love about what I'm doing right now is the collegiality and the camaraderie and the um the expectation that we all have that we need to show up in our best condition because if we don't we're letting the other group down we have a whatsapp for our Heineken group that now has probably another six or eight people on it that don't even row with us on that boat. But every other day, people are posting their workout. Hey, you know, here's what I did 45 minutes. I did it at this, this rating and I did it at this split. Is a challenge for the rest of us to see if we can meet that and get there. Or they do an interesting race that has, you know, maybe a minute on, a minute off three times and then a uh, you know, a minute on, 30 seconds off, three times following the, the minute on, minute off, and then 30 seconds on, 15 seconds off for five times, and they post their score. And then the rest of us try to beat that or try to match that or whatever. Everybody has a sense that, you know, you don't want to let the guy down in the boat. I'm not going to be in that boat unless I show up. There was a guy, Roberto Blanda, who's from Italy, that's been in our boat in Heineken a couple of times, wonderful guy, big guy, six foot five or six, you know, massive, strong guy. He was, for Italy, he was in at least one, if not two Olympic appearances. Uh, but one year when he started a new business, he just told me, Steve, I don't want to be in the boat because I don't think I can show up in the shape that I need to show up in to do justice to everybody that's in there. Um, one of my favorite stories so I'm a nobody in rowing. I mean, I can keep up with all these guys now because I've managed to stay in good shape and I work hard and, and I belong in the boat with all of them. But most of these guys have Olympic experiences, which I don't have. And the first time I invited 
my own people to the Heineken regatta, I invited through friends of mine, I got a hold of these two guys. One is Phil Moncton, who's from Canada, and he was in the 76, 80, and 84 Olympics. And then Vetla Vinya, who's from Oslo, Norway, and he was in the 84 and 88 Olympics. So every Thursday for lunch, when we get over to Amsterdam, we get together for lunch on Thursday. We have lunch, and then we go down to the boathouse, find our boat, rig our boat, and go out for a practice, which doesn't go that well because we all just flew over and got in there Thursday morning and we're half, you know, half asleep. But at lunch, the first time I had Phil and Vetla there, they're seated beside one another, and they're kind of going, oh, okay, so, you know, you're from Canada. Phil, you know, nice to meet you. Vetla, nice to meet you. Oh, you, you had some Olympic experience. Oh, you were in the 84 Olympics. So was I. Oh, what, uh, what, what race were you in? You were in the quadruple skulls? Really? So were we. And you were for Norway? Oh, you were the guys that we beat at the very end by just a, a split second or whatever. They, thir- you know, I don't know if it was 35 years ago, but 35 some years ago, they raced as young men together in the same race. They were side by side all the way down the course. Ultimately, I think the Canadian boat won by, you know, a mere second or two, 2,000 meters. They had never met. And here, many, many years later, they meet. They become solid friends. Every year, Phil, every other year, Phil will go over to Norway and train for a week or two with Vetla. Vetla then will come the next year over to Canada. They both entered the 60-plus double at the head of the Charles, which is one of the premier races in the fall in October, which, again, unfortunately, due to COVID-19, won't happen this year. But Phil and Vetla entered, entered the 60-plus age group double and won it two years ago and won it the second year after that. And, you know, those sort of things don't happen that often in life. And, and I think those of us that have rowed, once you've rowed and you've been in a boat, and you've put in the time, and for whatever ridiculous reason, rowers always get up at, you know, crazy hours, 4.35, 5.30 in the morning and do their rowing. For those of us that, you know, work or, or have worked, it's the best time to do it because nobody's going to bug you and you can do it. You know, if you try to get there at 5 o'clock at night, you know, maybe somebody wants your time. But it's, I mean, the, the relationships that I've developed over the last 10 or 11 years with guys and, and women that row that are competitive all around the world, uh, that that's pretty darn special. That is awesome. I want to go back to what you were talking about the prior work. Like you were saying, like if somebody beats you, you don't really feel bad because you know that they put in more work than you did. And you know, you know yourself that you put in a ton of work. I think that's a really good parallel just to life. Like when you show up to do something, putting in the prior work, could you talk a little bit more about that? Like the mentality of putting in the, the effort up front so that way you can perform at your best. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I made the mistake when I was raising my daughter, uh, who's now 29, and by the way, had a baby this weekend. Congratulations. So I'm, I'm a, a first-time grandpa, uh, Liam Marvin Oberender. So anyway, you know, I, I when I was younger, I'd make the mistake when Brittany would ask me, you know, well, should I do that, Dad? And I'd say, well, if you're going to do it, I mean, you ought to do it with purpose. You know, you ought to do it to, to do it well, you know, otherwise, why would you do it, right? Well, that's you know, I've, I've come to learn that's kind of a bad attitude and not the right way of looking at it. I mean, you do something, you know, when we win a race sometime, you know, the race is three or four minutes, you win the race, everybody pats you on the back, everybody takes notice at that time, it's no big deal. And then you forget about it. But it's thousands and thousands and thousands of strokes that led up to that and effort that led up to that, that allows you at that point in time to do what you need to do that, you know, where you end up. 
So it's, it's really important to appreciate the journey and to enjoy getting up every morning early and working out and physically, you know, we always say we race our kids. So we're all 55 to 70 years old, but we all, you know, we love, my favorite races are when I race in the open races and I race against the 20 year old kids. And sometimes, you know, we come out on the right end of the scale and we beat them. And, you know, uh, only because we have possibly better tech, technical experience because certainly, you know, more often than not, we don't have the physical side of that equation going for us. But, um, you know, so we all work hard. Some of us uh, have jobs that are more flexible so we can work a little harder. Uh, some of us, our kids are out of the nest. And so it affords us more time to work. You know, some of the guys that I row against, you know, have children at home or uh, are, you know, have a more demanding job and are more successful in their job. But, you know, I've had, you know, I put in a lot of time and effort. I push myself. Um, I, the first time I won the single at Masters Nationals some six, seven years ago, uh, the guy that is our coach, James Dundon, asked me, he said, how did it go? And I said, James, in our practices on Lake Nokomis, the races that we have are more competitive than the race that I had just now. Because I'm, you know, pulling a, you know, I'm racing against 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we all, we all put in a lot of time and effort. Uh, everybody's good. Uh, nobody's bad. Uh, but there's a degree of, you know, good and how quickly you move the boat. And it's just, you know, we all appreciate if somebody has an ability to, to do something that we don't do uh, because we realize at this age that those things are tough and fleeting. And uh, I always tell the, the young kids that start, you know, rowing with us that maybe at some point in time, or at least initially I can beat or keep up with, I just say, Hey, just keep working at it because every day you're going to get better and better and better and my game is just not to get worse and worse and worse and worse. I'm just trying to maintain and try to, you know, stay there, which I can't obviously, because you, you lose your strength and, you know, it just tends to go the other way. Yeah. I wanted to touch on something that you were kind of uh, dancing around there is the idea of consistency, like getting up every morning and going out and going and putting in the work. That's something that I struggle with. And I know a lot of guys uh, who are the age of my listeners here. Uh, that's something that they really struggle with. What do you think is the key to finding consistent consistency in putting in the, the work, you know, day after day? Well, I don't know. I think um, you have to have a goal and you have to enjoy what you're doing. Uh, if you're in a job that you don't enjoy, uh, especially at, you know, when you're in your twenties or your thirties, get out, find, find something that you like to do. Because if you find something that you like to do, then it's much easier to apply yourself. It's much, you, you wake up every morning, you're excited about it. You want to go in. If you find people that you enjoy doing it with, you want to go there and see them. You want to work with them. You want to try to achieve things. You want to try to better the world or do whatever it is that you're setting out to do. If you're miserable when you go there and you're only going there because it pays well, I mean, find another, you know, find something that you like to do. I think you have to have a goal. There were a couple of years when I was like 48, 49, I quit playing basketball and, and I didn't do much and I'd go to the gym, but I wouldn't do anything because I didn't have a goal. You know, if somebody wanted to talk to me on the bike while I'm on the bike, I'd stop biking and, you know, then the hour would be up and I'd go home. So I think you have to like what you're doing and you have to have a goal. And 
if you like what you're doing and you have a goal, then you get up and you do it all the time. And it's also one of the mistakes that I made when I was young. Uh, it's good to have a mentor. Find somebody in the area that you like spending time doing, whatever that is, who's done a very good job of doing that. And just go to him or her and say, all I want to do is carry your briefcase around. I just want to be with you and see how you do what you do and learn from you. Pay me a little bit. And if I do a good job, you can pay me more. But I think, I think you know, in rowing, if you get around the right people and you have somebody that can look at you every so often and say, yeah, try this, you know, how about this? Think about this, do that. And it's the right stuff. You get better. So I, you know, my, my daughter's 29, my son-in-law's 29. Um, I think in many ways they have a better outlook on things than I did uh, because they, they, they look for experiences. You know, they're, they're, they're looking to find things that will enrich their lives and experiences that they can have. But I think in order, in order to, uh, if, if in fact your goal is, you know, to achieve some level of uh, success in what it is that you're doing, whether that's monetary recognition or whatever, you have to find something that you like. Uh, otherwise, it's pretty hard to get up every morning and, you know, pay attention to it and do it. Yeah, before we uh, started the podcast, you mentioned something about um, using your gifts, right? What the gifts that uh, you got or uh, nature gives you, right? Um, your spiritual gifts, your mental gifts, your physical gifts. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you, because using those to find your passion, I think is, is the key, right? Is applying yourself with the talent that you have to find the passion that you like. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was uh, younger, I probably thought about this more than I do now. I don't know why necessarily, but, um, you know, all of us have physical attributes. Some of us have less, some of us have more. Uh, we should all be thankful for what we do have. Some of us have a certain degree of intellectual capacity. Some have more, some have less. Uh, we should be thankful for what we do have. And then, you know, your spirit or your determination, you know, I don't know if you're born with that or if that's kind of a, you know, an environmental thing and the people that you hang out with. It's important to, I mean, it's important to hang out with good people. Um, you know, that if you spend time with good people who are solid citizens, they treat people well, they treat themselves well, they're nice people, um, you know, that that's a better situation than hanging out with, you know, people that, you know, maybe don't care or whatever. But I think I always thought that, you know, I was given, you know, s some abilities in those three, you know, I was born with, you know, I was born on the right side of the tracks. I have a friend, John Ramarsic, uh, who's a very successful businessman, has owned 80 some restaurants, owns a lot of commercial real estate. And John always says, what do you attribute your success to? And, you know, you can, you can come up with these things like, you know, perseverance, hard work, this, that, and the other thing. And John shakes his head and he says, no, it's luck. I said, well, yeah, it's luck. It's when, it's when you're prepared, when opportunity and preparedness meet, that's luck. He said, no, no, it's just luck. You were born into a situation that a lot of people weren't born into that put you, you know, on the right side of the tracks that gave you a little, you know, head start in life. And uh, so I think, you know, when you're, when you're fortunate enough to be physically capable of doing things, when you have a certain degree of intellect that you might have been born with, um, if you can somehow develop a passion and a spirit and a, and a motivation to use those things and do 
what you like to do with them. Uh, I think you can achieve, you know, some, you know, some pretty big heights, you know, all of us. So if you, if your audience is younger, one of the things to think about when we get to the age that I am 60, 61, you look back and you start to say, well, what, you know, where did I take a right turn where I might've taken a left turn? What might've I done here that, you know, might've turned out a little bit better there. And one of the things that I think happens is you get wrapped up in life. You, you get married, you have a family, you have kids, you take them to their activities. You enjoy that. You love your kids. You spend a lot of time with them. And all of a sudden they're out of the house and it's 25, you know, 20 years later, 22 years later. And you're like, Whoa, that went pretty quick. I, I'm still in the same job that I'm in that I really don't like, or I'm still doing the same this that I, so I think it's important to assess, to make a, 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 a determined effort to assess where you're at every couple, two or three years and see if that's exactly who you, you know, are you the person that you want to be? Are you accomplishing the things that you set out to accomplish? Are you enjoying what you're doing? And, and if you're not, don't be afraid that the, the tough thing is we all get in situations where, Oh, it's not that bad. It kind of works. Um, you know, it's, you know, you know, I'll just put up with it and keep on going. And, you know, I think a lot of times we do that because it's difficult and, and uh, maybe we lack the courage or the confidence to say, you know, this just isn't where I want to be. That's not who I thought it, I, I would be. I, I'm not working with the people that I want to work with. Yeah. Maybe it, you know, it's a solid job maybe, but I think it's sometimes better to, you know, to self-actualize and get out of that environment and, find something that, you know, really gets you jazzed about life because sooner or later you're going to be like me, you're going to be 60 years old and you're going to go, well, I'm on, I'm on the, I'm on the outskirts, you know, I'm on the horizons of my time. If I got, you know, 20 or 30 years left, I'm a, I'm a happy camper. You know, I might have five or 10 years left. So I think it's kind of a constant assessment as you're, as you know, you get so wrapped up in life that all of a sudden 10, 15, 20 years go by, take some time to sit back and you know, if you're married, ask your, your husband or your wife or ask your brother or ask your father or your mother, you know, have some discussions about where you're at, what you're doing, see what they say. You know, I think oftentimes, I don't know about your generation, but my generation, although we paid attention and heeded our parents and things like that, we didn't often talk to them about some of the things that are really important in life. Uh, I think there was, there's more physical distance or mental distance between my generation and my parents. I think my daughter's probably a little closer and some of the things that she and I have discussed are things that, you know, my parents probably never would have ventured to discuss with me, but you know, um, they know you pretty well. So, you know, it's a good thing to kind of touch, touch home once in a while, go back there and, and, and try to figure out who you are and who you've become and where you're going and get some insight. The other thing is we all, I don't know why, maybe we all don't, but I did, you know, I, you know, you, you, you get out of, high school and I had done well in high school and now I'm going to Dartmouth college and I'm going to, I'm going to light up the world and set the, set the world on fire. And, you know, whatever my dad or my mother did, I'll, you know, blow by that in a heartbeat. And then at about 30 years of age, I started to realize that dad was pretty smart. He did, he did all right. You know, he, he wasn't all that bad. Now the unfortunate thing for me is at the time that I realized that, and he wasn't sick, but you know, uh, shortly thereafter, he had a massive heart attack and, I was 30 years old and I lost my dad at 57. So um, anyway. Yeah, I think it's really important to, yeah, I've had the same experience with my dad where I was like, oh, he's wrong about everything. I'd always argue with him. And then 
I had the opportunity. He also had a he had a uh, he didn't have a heart attack. Luckily, they caught it, but he had a triple bypass. I was in I was in France at the time when it happened. And um, after that, he's a he's a salesman, so he drives around. And when you have an open heart surgery, you can't drive. You know, the, if the airbag goes off, it'll kill you. So right. I ended up driving my dad for 11 weeks and just it was in the car 6 a.m. till, you know, seven most days. And, and we would just talk and just sit, having that time was such a gift because I really got to know my dad um, and really understand like, wow, he has a lot of wisdom and really trying to take it in. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, hopefully they have a lot of wisdom and are good people because we all like to like ourselves. You got to like yourself. I mean, that's the first thing. If you don't like yourself, you got to, you know, it's going to be a hard time doing any of this stuff that we're talking about. And, you know, if we like ourselves, kudos to our parents for, you know, doing more things right than wrong to make us, you know, decent human beings. Yeah. I think one of the things I really enjoy talking about is if, if you recognize something in yourself that you don't like, how do you go about fixing that? Right. And that, I think that's kind of what we've been talking about vaguely is that when you recognize that you have a weakness or or a deficiency like whether it be in rowing or in life in general you have to like be bold enough and, and, ha and have that courage to go out there and try and fix it well and you i think more often than not you need somebody to help you see that because you're so you know you're so into it and you know you've lived with yourself for so long that um you know, I, I've been in, I mean, all of us are in sales. We're selling something. I mean, you know, all the time. And, uh, you know, I remember back in my early days when I'd be selling commercial real estate, the sales manager would always say, Faber, you got to just slow down. I mean, you ask a bunch of questions, you figure out what the answer is, and then you tell them what they ought to do. But you need to let them come to figure that out. You know, you can't just tell them because they won't accept it. But if you just sort of lead them there and let them come to understand it themselves, they'll probably accept it. So I think it's helpful to, that's why I say it's helpful to, to, to talk to your spouse, to talk to your brother, to talk to the people that you work with. That's why good businesses will do assessments of their employees and try to, you know, find out where I have weaknesses and where I have strengths and then let me know what they believe my strengths are, you know, a third party comes in and, and, you know, here's some things you can improve upon. Um, it, it's difficult, I think, to change those things that you're weak at because, I mean, you can't change the stripes in a zebra. I mean, you, it, you are what you are by about the time you're 15, I think. But I think it's important to recognize where your weaknesses are so that you can, uh, you know, you're, you're self-aware of them so that, you know, you, you tend to think about it and try to mitigate the damages that may cause that. But I think you need people to, it's hard to do a self-assessment and figure it out. I think you need people that you're uh, comfortable with that can look at you and, and talk to you. And then certainly that's the aspect in rowing. You know, you can, you go out there and, and one coach may say something and it just doesn't resonate. The way they bring it to your attention and they say it, it doesn't resonate. Somebody else may come in and look at the same difficulty that you're having but relate it to you in a different manner and the light goes off and you go, Oh, now I get it. Now I, now I know what they're asking. Now I know what it should feel like. Now I know, you know, so I think, uh, you know, but uh, you know, like I say, you got to enjoy the journey. You gotta, you gotta love what you're doing and like, love the people that you're around and uh, otherwise find that environment sooner rather than later. Cause it is out there for all of us. You know, if we just look for it and don't get kind of, in the lane driving down the highway 90 miles an hour and never look back. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. Well, 
you're a guy that I think a lot of guys, you're a cool guy. I've really enjoyed talking to you in our, in our conversation so far. I wanted to, the podcast, one of the main themes is masculinity, right? The, it's, it's, about, it's to help women too, but it's really to help young men, you know, find their mission, find their purpose, grow in character, all these things that we've been kind of talking about. I wanted to ask you, what is your uh, definition of masculinity? Like? What does masculinity look like to you? Well, it's not the macho duck, you know, big, strong, athletic, push you around, pushy kind of thing. I mean, that, that to me, isn't it? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's more somebody who's able to make themselves vulnerable. Um, you know, do guys cry? Uh, I, I tell you what, when... Uh, when, when you bring up my dad, I cry. When you bring up my daughter's wedding, she married a wonderful young man, I cry. Uh, when you bring up Liam, the boy that she just gave birth to, you know, I mean, those are all special things. Um, you know, so I think, you know, maybe being able to be vulnerable, to talk about the things that scare you, to talk about the things that are fearful, uh, to be able to you know, talk about areas where you haven't succeeded, where you haven't done what you wanted to, where maybe you did a wrong thing. And, and to have the confidence that uh, that's okay, that you're comfortable in your own skin, you have to, you, you have to like yourself. I mean, it, you know, to, to, to kind of do well. And, and so, you know, I think, I think masculinity is, you know, and I'm just talking off the top of my head because I, you know, you didn't, give me the chance of telling me you're going to ask this question <laughs> so I could have a more, you know, a, a better, you know, more scripted answer. But I think it's being vulnerable. I think it's being comfortable in your own skin. Uh, I think it's a willingness to help others. Uh, uh, I don't think it has anything to do with, um, you know, dominance or any of those things, you know, I mean, you're comfortable that if somebody, you know, comes at you, you'll be able to defend yourself and kind of, you know, find a buddy or do what you need to do to, you know, to get out of that situation. But I think it's, I think it's, it's something deeper than just an outward appearance. I think it's, it's more an inward reflection on who we are. And um, at the end of the day, when you get to be you know, I keep on saying my age, I hope hopefully have another 20 or 30 years and, and, and hopefully I'll do something with it. But, you know, at some point in time, I'm going to be gone. And the only thing that's going to be left are what people thought of, you know, I could build, you know, I'm in commercial real estate. So I put up a bunch of buildings, you know, I'm, I can say I was involved in building that big building. I was involved in that one. You know, who cares? Uh, but, you know, I think my daughter will remember me for a lot of years because I, I, I think I did a lot of good with her. Uh, you know, my son-in-law, uh, people, you know, some of the younger people that I roll with and I mentor and, and they get better and better and maybe I gave them some encouragement or maybe I helped them do that. So I think at some point in time, you need to sooner rather than later think about, you know, what what it is that when you look back, you'll say, you know, I, I did all right. I was a pretty good person. I, I made a difference. Um, and, and you look at some of the things that go on in politics right now where people just can't sit down and figure stuff out and get together and, and make things happen. If the younger generation can get in there 
and forget about what party you're with. Just figure out what the right stuff is for people to help people to make it a better place. I know that sounds easy and it's difficult, but you know, if there's 10 things that people disagree on, I guarantee you we can come to a common accord on seven of them. We can probably agree to do, agree to do what, you know, you want to do on one and I want to do on another. And maybe there's two that we can't agree to that we just aren't going to agree to, but we can do a heck of a lot better job of, um, you know, getting from A to Z and doing it in a manner that's respectful uh, and that's beneficial for other people. And, and, and certainly at this point in time, maybe we screwed it up, you know, us 60 year olds kind of screwed it up a little bit for, you know, our kids and other people, but that, that's, that's an area that needs a lot of attention. We need some leaders. We need people who can come in that are good people that have uh, good morals, good character, uh, that have great leadership abilities that have, uh, you know, good intellect that are willing to reach across the aisle and figure out how to get things done so that, you know, we can deal with some of the, the issues that we have. And I, I, frankly, I think, you know, I look at my daughter and her friends and, and a lot of the folks that are in their late twenties and early thirties. And I think we're in, I think there's a hell of a lot of wonderful people that, you know, if they're uh, given the right opportunities and if they align themselves well, uh, you know, we're in good hands. Yeah, I, I tend to think that um, the role of men, especially like as, as leaders, one of my, my recent guests, Dr. Thompson, talked a lot about that. Like we need to, you need to, now's the time to step up. Like our world needs good, good men, number one, but just good people to step up. Uh, I think really the role of men is calm confidence. And I think that's kind of what you're describing is that, that, that openness, that gentleness, but also that, that firmness and resolve that is, it's, it's calm confidence. Yeah, and, and I think we have to, you know, be willing to call a spade a spade. We can't always be politically correct, whatever that means. I mean, it, you know, if there's bad stuff going on, you know, people have, you know, we have to acknowledge that it's bad. But I think the other thing that we have to do as men is, you know, in many, many respects, women are better managers than we are. They're better listeners, you know, for the most part. Uh, they're more collaborative than we are for the most part, you know, however that happens. And that's a generalization. It's not in every instance or whatever. But, uh, you know, I mean, we, as, as men, I mean, we, we need to, you know, I think sometimes put that, you know, whatever it is, call it machoism or whatever aside and, and realize that, you know, uh, you know, I'll let her make the decisions for me because I think she'll make better decisions than I will. And, you know, I'm willing to do that. I think that, uh, um, so I, I think that's part of the, part of the equation too. You know, if you get your ego out there, you're in trouble. I mean, there's a lot of people that are narcissistic. There's a lot of people that have big egos, but you know, we really don't have time for that. There isn't, you know, good people don't do that. I mean, you know, you, you, you need to, one of these days, I mean, we've had, you know, there's some good people that have been, you know, like, you know, that have led companies and led the United States and stuff like that. Um, you know, I won't make any comment, but, uh, you know, we, as a country, with so many resources, with so many opportunities, I just hope and pray that, you know, we get, whether it's male or female, I couldn't, but, you know, I, I just hope and pray we get somebody uh, that's, uh, you know, in leadership positions that we, uh, you know, we can all rally behind and look at and be proud of and say, holy smokes, I mean, he or she is just, wow, you know. 
they they should go down in history as being one of the best. They're just they're just amazing in the things they do and their ability to get it done. And you know, we 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 need people like that. So I um, I would encourage because in some respects I failed. I think I have an intellect and a and and, and capabilities and you know might have been able to make a bigger difference had I not been so driven to do some of the things that I've done and some of the work that I've done. But uh, you know. Take a look at you know what you might do to to be a, a positive impact on on society and the world as a whole. Yeah, I think that is incredibly important, especially yeah in this day and age. We we need men to step up. We need people to take responsibility for you know our world in in not not in a broad sense, but like your day to day activities affect people. How you live your life affects people around you. Like my, for example. I have roommates, right? And if I am a if I'm a jerk and I leave my dishes out, that's going to affect them, and that's going to affect their day and their productivity and whatever else, right? So like, it's taking responsibility. I think that's the that's the first step. Take responsibility, and uh, you know, be be a good man. It's kind of like you're absolutely right. It's kind of like that pay it back thing where, you know, I pay it back, and then I find two people to pay it back, and they find two people, and they find two people, and all of a sudden you've got a million people that are doing the right thing. So it, 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 you can certainly have a positive influence on a lot of people by just being a good person and, and doing, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, before we go, and you mentioned that you, uh, you studied English in college, and I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite piece of literature? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, you know, I... I you know, I, I read all sorts of things and I don't know that I have a, you know, a favorite one, but, uh, you know, I think any book that I can sit down with my grandson, Liam, and read is my favorite piece of literature at that time when I'm reading it with him. You know, people who have an ability to communicate well in the written, you know, writing things down, that's a gift. Uh, and that was, you know, one of the benefits, I suppose, of my majoring in English is I, is I write fairly well and I can communicate in writing quite well, but, uh, no, I think uh, I think moving forward, the my favorite books will be those that I can sit down with Liam and read to him as he grows up. Doctor yeah. Seuss, Doctor Seuss books. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Well, Steve, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It was great having you. Well, th- uh, thank you, Vincent, and you know, best of luck in what you're doing. And and I guess I've gotten a little more insight into, you know, what your podcast is all about. And uh, I admire you for doing it. And if you're ever in Minneapolis and you want to get out on the river and, you know, take a spin in a boat, let me know. All righty. Will do. Well, thanks so okay. much. All the best. Bye. That was my guest, Stephen Faber. Steve had a career in commercial real estate, but in the last decade has rediscovered his love for rowing. Steve competes internationally and has participated in events all over the world. We got into some great stuff in this episode, and I hope you took something away like I did. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you back for the next one.